The sermon this morning comes from John 8, 31 through 59. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are my offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reasons why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. I remember years ago going to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and hearing the story of the Holocaust, and it's, it's tragic. But one of the things that I remember is in, in one part of the museum, they described uh, what happened when the Jews were brought on the deportation trains to the killing centers. And when they'd get them there, they would, they would actually separate them. So the ones that seemed strong, that could do some manual labor, they would, they would use, but most of them they would uh, assign to, to death. And the ones that they selected to die, they would um, move them towards the gas chambers. But to prevent panic they would tell them that they were going to the showers to be cleansed of the lice that was on them. 
So you have this picture of the Jews thinking that they're, they're going to the showers to be cleaned and cleansed of lice, and they were asked to give over their valuables and to undress. And as they were moved to what they thought were going to be showers, they were moved into gas chambers, and they died. Every form of tyranny or slavery on that extreme level, all the way down to smaller forms of tyranny and slavery, feed off of some sort of lie, feed off of some sort of half-truth. And what we see here in this passage is that Jesus exposes a form of slavery. Then he exposes the lies off of which that, that slavery feeds. And then he declares the truth that will set you free. So how does the truth set you free? How does the truth set you free from slavery? Well, this begs all kinds of questions, right? How are we enslaved? What is the truth? What is freedom? And Jesus answers it all in this passage. So to answer it, let's first start with the need for truth. Now, why is this important? Why is there a need for truth? Well, notice who Jesus is speaking to in verse 31. It says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. So Jesus is speaking to a, a people that had responded to him in some way. A people that had believed in some way. Now, what we see by the ensuing dialogue is that their belief was clearly insufficient. There was something wrong with it. There was something wrong with their condition and there was something wrong with their understanding of Jesus' identity that Jesus is going to address. Now, what was it? Well, verses 31 to 33, look what Jesus says. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then look how they respond. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? You see, Jesus implies that they're in slavery. And they say, what are you talking about, Jesus? We're not enslaved. You see, they're enslaved and they don't realize it. They're not aware of it. Now, Jesus could have pressed them at this point. He could have said, uh, you had ancestors who were in awful slavery in Egypt. You're in kind of a semi-slavery now under Rome, but he doesn't, do, he doesn't go there because that's not the point. Look what he says in verse 34. He goes on to say that they were, what? Slaves to sin. You see, Jesus is talking about a heart slavery that they're not aware of. He's talking about an invisible slavery that they're not detecting. And it's an invisible slavery that exists today. It's an invisible slavery that is so incredibly relevant for our world and culture today. Let me explain. There's a longing for freedom in our world. There's a longing for freedom in our culture. There's a yearning for it. There's a belief 
that there is a freedom that is absent of constraint and absent of restriction. In fact, the absolute truth that Jesus is speaking about here is the enemy of this kind of freedom. And in many ways from our culture, Christianity, the truth of Jesus is seen as the great enemy of freedom because freedom is defined as the absence of restrictions, the absence of constraint. And Jesus in Christianity brings some constraint, some restriction. And so our culture defines freedom by the absence of constraint. We see this expressed, um, this sentiment in the, the famous sweet mystery of life statement in the Supreme Court's Planned Parenthood versus Casey ruling. Listen to what they said. At the heart of liberty, at the heart of freedom, is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning of the universe, and the mystery of human life. At the heart of liberty is, is defining, not discovering, big difference, defining one's own concept of existence. There's this idea that freedom is absent from these outside constraints. You're, from within, you can define your own rules, but from outside, there's a freedom from constraint. So it, it leads to, in our culture, uh, a, a desire for sexual freedom, right? Sexual freedom, meaning that you can pursue sexual pleasure however you want, right? whatever you feel is, is right. Now, the irony is, is that freedom really doesn't exist because if you were to ask the person that would be a proponent of sexual freedom, if it's okay to seek sexual gratification by abusing children or taking advantage of children, that person would say, absolutely not. Right, there's constraints that we all, there, there are restrictions or take the, uh, the person that says, I'm gonna quit corporate America. I'm tired of the uh, abuse of authority. I'm tired of bureaucracy. Uh, I'm done with corporate America. And they become a freewheeling environmentalist and they, they live off the land and it's about, um, uh, they're a naturalist and a purist. And right, that, even that person in the name of freedom that's done that is constrained by their own freedom. They can't go work in corporate America, right? They've, they've put constraints and restrictions. Let me give you another example. I want you to imagine that, that one of the board members for the local gay, lesbian, and transgender community says, I've had a religious experience and I believe homosexuality is wrong. And that board member is, is vocal in their thoughts of this, this change in view. At the same time, I want you to imagine that a board member on the Alliance Against Same-Sex Marriage announces, my son is gay and I believe he has the right to marry his partner. Now, both of those boards, as flexible and as gracious as the members on the board may be, those two board members are gonna be asked to step off, right? Because they both are not lining up with the commitments of that community. And now the, the irony of it is you, you've got the, the, the gay, lesbian, and transgender community that has a reputation of being inclusive, right? And proponents of sexual freedom. You've got the Alliance Against Same-Sex Marriage group that is, has a reputation of being exclusive and very sexually restrictive. And here's an example where both are operating virtually the same. They both have constraints. You see, the freedom that Jesus is talking about here is not a freedom that's absent of constraint or absent of restrictions, 
Now, the, the freedom that Jesus is talking about here is a freedom that is about finding the restrictions that are liberating, the restrictions and the constraints that are life-giving. That's the freedom that Jesus is talking about. Look at verse 34. He says, Jesus says, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And then in verse 36, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed, right? Jesus is not saying here, you're a slave to sin. I'll set you free to do what you want. It's not what he's saying, right? He's saying, I will set you free within constraints and restrictions that are life-giving. It's the classic example of, of a fish, right? A fish because it absorbs oxygen from the water and not from the air is truly free when it's in the water. If, if you put a fish on the grass, right, it, its freedom to move and its freedom to live is not enhanced, it's destroyed. What Jesus is saying here is that freedom is not absence of constraints, but the right constraints that are liberating and life-giving and joy-producing. How do we know that? Well, look at verse 35. He says that a slave doesn't remain in the house forever, but that the son remains forever. Then down in verse 38, he says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So you've got here Jesus talking about two different fathers and two different houses and two different voices or two different words. One word is life-giving. The other word brings death, or to use the, the illustration of the fish. One word, one voice puts the fish in water. One word, one voice puts the fish on land, on the grass. And so we're going to explore these two words. Word of untruth and word of truth. Let's start with the word or the, the voice of untruth. What's the source of it? Well, verses 39 to 47, Jesus is basically expounding upon what he says in verse 38, which is, he says, you do what you have heard from your father. Well, who's their father? Well, by the time you get to verse 44, it's clear. He's saying their father is the devil, that they're listening to him and that they're doing what he says. Now, here's the problem. They don't see that. They don't see it. Notice, the, notice how the, the dialogue plays out. In verse 39, they say, Abraham's our father. What does Jesus say? If you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did, but you seek to kill me. That's not what Abraham did. So he presses them further. He says, your father is the devil. They respond again. They say, no, we have one father, even God. They are convinced they're Abraham's children. They are convinced God is their father, and yet they're seeking to kill Jesus. They're seeking to murder Jesus. Pretty explicit in the Ten Commandments. You say, how does this happen? How does this happen? How are they claiming to be father, or children of Abraham and that God's their father, and yet seeking to kill Jesus? It's because sin is deceitful. Sin is deceitful. And sin is deceitful because the devil is deceitful. That the devil lies. Look at verse 44 as Jesus describes him. 
It says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. What does Jesus say there about the devil? His goal is to destroy you, to destroy the church. That's murder. And his method is deception. So his goal is destruction. His method is deception. Now, Jesus says in verses 44 and 45 that this is who the devil is as we see from the beginning. What's the beginning? He's speaking of Genesis 3. In the very beginning, the way that the devil came in and brought both death and deception. Now, the death is pretty easy to see. Right? Adam and Eve rebelled, and they, they experienced death outside the Garden of Eden. But what about the lying? Where, where do we see the deception in the beginning? In Genesis 3. And we see in Genesis 3, if you want to turn there and follow along, you can. But we see two fundamental characteristics of the devil's deception in the garden. The first is this, that the devil removes consequences and minimizes sin. Removes consequences and minimizes sin. There was one command of prohibition in the garden, right? There's one command that God gave, and that was don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There were plenty of trees in the garden, lots of trees, but there was one tree, one command. Notice what the devil says when he approaches Eve. He begins by saying, did God say you couldn't eat from any tree? No, he just said one tree. But you, you see what the devil is doing here, how he's, he's lying and deceiving. He's trying to get Eve or suggesting that God's command commands are unreasonable. To the woman, this is unreasonable. Did he really say you can't eat from any tree? Now, what does the woman say? No, he said we couldn't eat from, we could eat from any tree, we couldn't eat from this one tree, nor can we touch it. Now, the woman already is beginning to, to believe the, the, the lie because notice what's happened. There was one command in the garden, one simple command don't eat from the tree, with drastic consequences, you'll die. That was it, one simple command with drastic consequences. And now the woman is saying, no, we can eat from any tree, but we can't eat from this one, nor can we touch it. Now she's turned it into two commands of prohibition, right? God said, never said anything about not touching it. He said, don't eat from it. So see, she's starting to believe this. Yeah, this is unreasonable. He said we can't eat from it and we can't touch it. And See, so, so the devil is beginning to, to feed this lie that, that God's commands really are unreasonable. And then, of course, he moves to the, the outright lie when he says, you will not surely die. You're not gonna die. There's no consequences. Eat from the tree, enjoy that fruit. There's nothing wrong with it. You're not gonna die. So we see early on in the beginning, the devil uh, minimizing sin by saying, this is unreasonable. It's not a big deal. And no consequences. You're not going to die. Now, what does this look like? What's it look like to minimize sin 
and to remove the consequences. Well, I think at a very practical level, it's, it's justifying or making excuses for sin. That when we make excuses for sin, that, that, that is the deception of the devil, to minimize sin. Because when you make excuses for it, it's, it minimizes it. It's not that bad. Let me give you a couple examples. How do we make excuses for anger? I wouldn't lose my temper if my coworkers were easier to get along with or if my kids behaved better or if my spouse were more considerate. How do we make excuses for impatience? I would be a very patient person if it weren't for traffic jams and long lines in the grocery store, if I didn't have so many things to do and if the people around me weren't so slow I would never become impatient. How do we make excuses for lust? I would have a pure mind if there weren't so many sensual images in our culture. Anxiety. I wouldn't worry about the future if my life were just a little more secure, if I had more money and no health problems. Or selfishness. How do we make excuses for selfishness? I would be more generous if we had more money. That when we make excuses for sin, right, that is the deceptive work of the devil to minimize sin and ultimately to remove the consequences so you don't feel as bad about it. In, in the Garden of Eden language, it's this. It's the devil saying, does God really expect you to not get angry with those coworkers you have? Or, does God really expect you to stay pure with all the sensual images that just blast you on the internet and all over our culture? Does he really expect that? Or, does, does God really expect you to not get anxious with the health problems that you have? Right? The devil's deception comes to minimize sin and remove its consequences. Let me go to a second fundamental characteristic of the deception of the devil that we see in the beginning in Genesis 3. And that is that the devil lies by convincing you that there's something or someone besides God that will make you happy and satisfy your deepest desires. Now, look what happens in Genesis 3. After the devil outright lies and says, you're not going to die, no consequences to this. Then he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. What's the devil saying to the woman there? God's holding out on you. He's hiding something. There's something better than him. In fact, there's something in his created world that will make you happy, right? This tree, the fruit from, from it, it's the same lie he speaks today, that there's something in this created world, something that will ultimately make you happy, that will ultimately satisfy your soul. And, and we get barraged with this message through commercials, through ad campaigns, through the internet. It, it, it is the message that comes forward. There's something in this created world that will satisfy you. The, the one that comes to mind for me is the, uh, this, will, <laughs> this will probably tell you a little bit about my stress these days, but um, it's, the, it's the ginger ale, Canada Dry ginger ale commercial. And the commercial starts with uh, 
pictures of people working really hard and playing really hard. And there's this music that kind of thumps the work harder, play harder, work harder. And these, the people are sweating and they're dirty and, and it's just, they're working hard. And then it, and it quickly transitions to this scene of this person laying on the beach in tropical paradise, drinking a Canada dry ginger ale with real ginger, relaxing. You there with me? Right? There's another one. First half's the same. Second half is picture of a man reclining on his recliner, drinking ginger ale, but then he sees that it's empty. And out comes this little robot on the floor and moves in with a brand new ginger ale. And he puts his empty can on the robot and he picks up the new can and it goes away. And at the end of the commercial, what flashes across the screen? Relax harder. And I wanted to buy a case of ginger ale, put the beach chair in my car, go to the beach and lay there and drink ginger ale because that was gonna ultimately take away my stress, right? Listen, that is, that's the message behind that commercial. Drink ginger ale with real ginger and all your stress will be gone. Now, ginger has a relaxing effect on the body, yes. Rest is good, yes. That's not the point. The point of that commercial and every other one is this, that if you're stressed, if you're anxious, that there's something in this created world that ultimately is gonna bring you comfort and happiness and peace and tranquility. It might be a new car. It might be a new house. It might be a new spouse. It might be a new boyfriend, new girlfriend. It might be a new job. On and on. There's this promise. And it's the, it's the deception of the devil. In, in, the, in, in the Garden of Eden language, it's this, the devil saying, if you had this, then you would be happy. Fill in that blank. If you had this, you would be happy. And that's the deception of the devil. It's how he works. Now, how does the truth set you free? You first have to understand that you're not free. Nobody is. That everyone is controlled or constrained by something or someone. And Jesus says, I'm gonna sum up this something or someone that controls you by two words, two voices, right? The voice of untruth or the word of untruth that ultimately leads to death. It is the, the word of the devil, the deception of the devil. Oh, but there's another word. And it's the word of truth. It's the word of truth that yes, it brings constraints because there are constraints in everything, but they are life-giving constraints that are liberating and they bring freedom. Jesus makes a shocking claim about himself in verses 56 to 58. You see how he sets this up? Nobody's free when defined as the absence of constraint. There's a constraining word that's the word of untruth, the word of the devil that is not life-giving. Now, Jesus says, 
there's a word of truth, right? It'll set you free. And he begins to describe something about himself and this word of truth, right? They're pressing him. So verses you know, 48 to 59, listen, this argument, if you read this and you think it's just some quiet, calm, spiritual, devotional conversation between Jesus and some people, you're misreading it. This is a violent argument. This is a lynch mob. They're ready to lynch Jesus. And this, this argument starts to press and press until they keep saying, Abraham's our father. And finally, finally, they say, Jesus, you've got a demon. You're a Samaritan. You're a half-breed, Jesus. You got a demon. That's the beginning of verse 48 and moving on. So they're pressing and then they say, are you, are you greater than our father Abraham? Are you greater than the prophets? What are you talking about? They're, I mean, they're pushing Jesus to come clean and make the statement. And listen to what he says in verse 56. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, what is Jesus saying there? Abraham, thousands and thousands of years earlier, saw Jesus' day. Where, do we, where is that happening? He's probably referring to Genesis 15, verses 17 to 21, when God makes the covenant with Abram, Abraham. And in that covenant-making ceremony, an animal was sacrificed and cut in half. And in that day, if you made a covenant, two people, the two parties, would walk between the animal pieces to say, if I don't uphold my end of the covenant, let this happen to me. Let me be cut in half. Let me die. When God strikes the covenant with Abraham, Abraham doesn't pass between the pieces. Abraham watches as the, 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 the flaming torch moves between the animal pieces, which was God saying this, if I break my end of the covenant, let this happen to me. And guess what, Abraham? If you break your end of the covenant and all your offspring after you, let this happen to me. Abraham saw a picture of Jesus Christ. That's what it represented, walking between those animal pieces to say, Abraham, when you fail and your children fail, I'm gonna pay the penalty. I'm gonna be cut in half. Abraham saw that in Genesis 15. And Jesus says when he saw that, he, he was glad to see Jesus' day, right? He was glad to see Jesus' day. And then in verse 58, he says, before Abraham was, I am. I am. That's the personal covenant name of God that we see in Exodus 3, given to Moses from God in the burning bush. Jesus is saying, I am God. And the Jews know it. That's why they pick up stones immediately to throw at him, because stoning was the penalty for blasphemy. Now, why does Jesus choose to end this long, violent, heated argument this way? By saying, I am God. Because the truth that will set you free from the control and the dominion of slavery is not a set of rational principles. It's not a set of coaching tips. It's not a set of strategies. It is a person who is God, 
who's uncreated, who's existed from eternity past, whose name's Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ himself is the word of truth that sets you free. This is what we see in Matthew chapter four. In Matthew four, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus Christ into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the devil tempts Jesus three times. And Jesus resists three times. Now Jesus did not resist the devil in Matthew four to show you how to resist sin when you're tempted. That's not what was happening there. Because a set of strategies, here's how Jesus resisted the devil, you do the same. That doesn't set you free from slavery. Because you can't set yourself free from slavery. No, the purpose of Matthew 4 is Jesus Christ resisting the devil for you, defeating the devil for you, defeating death ultimately for you, defeating sin for you. That that's the point. And that's why Jesus ends this passage to say, I'm not just a man that's coming along to teach, a good teacher, a good man saying, hey, here's how you need to live good. Here's a couple points and and tips to how to overcome sin and slavery to sin. No, Jesus is saying, I am God. I'm the God man, fully human, fully God that has come to rescue you. And we see this in verse 47. Look at it. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. You see what John is saying here. The of God language in John is his way of, it's it's being born of God. Jesus is saying here, listen, I have to set you free. And until you're set free, you can't hear my words. Until I set you free, Jesus says, you cannot hear my words. You have to be born of God. You have to be set free. We know that. A slave can't set himself free. Someone has to come and set him free. So Jesus is the God man, fully human, fully God that comes to set you free. Now, how do you respond to such amazing news? Look at verse 51. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. And that phrase, keeps my word, it means obey, obeys Jesus' word. Over in verse 31, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, abide my, in my word means to remain or to stay. So if you put these together, keeping or obeying Jesus' word, remaining or staying, what it means is this, to be controlled by, to be persuaded by, to be instructed by Jesus' word, to want to hear Jesus' word, that ultimately that's what you want to hear. Now listen, wanting to hear Jesus' word is what flows out of first being set free by Jesus. See, in this passage, Jesus says to the crowd that's hostile, he says, you cannot bear to hear my word. Until you're set free, you can't bear to hear Jesus' word. Or if you can't bear to hear it, you're just indifferent to it. The Bible's read or you read the Bible and and there's just nothing. Why? Because you're not set free by Jesus. 
But oh, when Jesus sets you free and you're born again, he gives you ears now that hear his word, that want to hear it. In fact, I love how D.A. Carson, he's, he, he writes a commentary on John. He says it this way. A genuine believer, meaning someone that has been set free by Jesus, obeys Jesus' word, seeks to understand it better, and then I love this, listen, finds it more precious more controlling precisely when other forces flatly oppose it. When Jesus sets you free, your heart, your eyes, your ears, everything about you comes alive to his word. And under the control of his word, you flourish. And life begins to break out in areas it's never broken out in your life because the right restrictions are in place, the right constraints are in place that are life-giving. The question is, have you been set free? Have you been set free? Let's pray. Jesus, you make a profound promise in this passage. that if you set us free, we will be free indeed. Father, we're well aware of the deception and the lies that the devil speaks. The deception of the devil that minimizes sin, that removes consequences, that says if you just had this, you'd be happy. We're, we're confronted with that every moment of every day. And yet, Jesus, we believe what you say in this passage, that when you set us free, that our hearts and our eyes and our ears and our whole being is opened up to your word and that your word becomes precious and electrifying and persuading. Oh, Father, we still struggle. But Jesus, when you set us free, the dominion and the control of sin is shattered. You defeat the devil, you defeat death, you defeat sin. And so we plead and we pray by your spirit that we would find your word, Jesus, more compelling, more controlling, more persuading than anything else we hear, that your word would be more real to us than anything else we hear. And thank you, Jesus, that you are the God-man, fully human, fully God. And because of that, you have the power to set us free. And we pray that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen.